This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The last thing you want to find in your backyard in Hamilton is an alligator. There's probably a few more critters in that equation, but certainly an alligator, especially one that's one and a half meters long. That is what happened on Tuesday when a fellow by the name of Walter Ertzinian uh, and his 18 and 11-year-old daughters saw the gator Tuesday after they got out of the family's backyard swimming pool. Uh, now, one of the daughters, apparently the 11-year-old, thought that the alligator was a pool toy, but no, it was actually real. It started moving its head, and uh, the daughters, obviously, uh, I would be doing the same thing, freaking out, and said, hey, Dad, you got to check this out. So Animal Services says... Uh, Ertzinian, uh, who was getting ready to celebrate his 25th wedding anniversary, maybe it was a present from his wife, uh, he called police, who then enlisted the department's help to move this uh, this reptile. Uh, Ertzinian posted a video on Facebook showing staff corralling the animal using a flexible lead and preparing to get it off the property. We have a clip, an audio clip of this, uh, of this Facebook post uh, that uh, Luke is going to play, or our technical producer is going to play here in a second. Uh, uh, Ertzinian's home backs onto the Bruce Trail and a rail line. So here's the audio from the Facebook video that Ertzinian took of the reptile. Well, it's hissing pretty good, eh? Answer it, please. Answer the phone. Wow. It's a little pissed off. And I'll hold the gate for you. Yeah, as I said, the last thing you want to see is a hissing alligator in your backyard. Now, the good news is no one was hurt. The gator was put into the custody of animal services. Uh, the department says it doesn't know how the reptile came to be in uh, in the backyard, but says alligators are among the animals prohibited under city bylaws. So if someone had this as a pet, uh-oh, they could be in trouble. Uh, also, a spokesperson for the city of Hamilton said that the animal has since been moved to a zoo in Thorold, which uh, has plans to send it uh, to an alligator sanctuary in Florida. So hopefully uh, it does well when it is eventually transferred. I thought, man, we got to talk about this because this is not something you see every day or even hear about every day, especially here in Hamilton. Florida, yeah, different story. I can I can understand. But in Hamilton, no. Uh, Andre No is the assistant director of Little Ray's Reptile Zoo in Hamilton and joins us on the Scott Thompson Show. Andre, how are you? All right. So what do you, what did you think about the story when you first heard of it? Uh, sadly, it happens all too often. Um, people just really don't think, and they make impulsive purchases or bring things home that might seem cool on the spur of the moment and uh, realize all too quickly that they probably made a mistake. So you're, you're suggesting that this was probably a pet and not an alligator that just came out of the guy's, uh, you know, as he backs onto the Bruce Trail. It didn't, it didn't come from the Bruce Trail. Uh, most likely. I don't think it was on vacation up here or anything <laughs> like that. It certainly wouldn't survive for the winter. So. so this is obviously somebody's pet. Is it, is it, are we able to track this thing down? Are alligators usually tagged? Unfortunately, uh, most likely this alligator was purchased illegally and uh, basically was being kept illegally. So the chances of it being microchipped and tagged are pretty minimal. Right. So it's almost impossible to find out who actually owned this reptile. Yeah. I mean, unless it were legitimately owned, which is highly unlikely, and it would be a zoo or the like, uh, the chances are pretty much non-existent. Yeah. As I said, the the good news is no one was hurt. Um, but, I mean, things could have really gone wrong. How dangerous uh, of an animal is this? 
Uh, to be honest, I mean, most likely the alligator would run or turn away, but, uh, you know, if it were kept as a pet, it might associate people with food hmm. uh, and, you know, assume that people nearby are going to feed it, so it could show up and kind of come toward people. It can certainly frighten people, and most likely being loose on its own, possibly for the first time in its life, it might have been a bit frightened itself, so it certainly could have done quite a bit of damage. We had uh, or we have the Facebook post on our website at 900chml.com. We played an audio snippet uh, from that uh, Facebook post. The reptile is, is uh, a meter and a half long, and it was hissing. Two questions. Number one, a meter and a half. How old would this reptile be? You know, it's actually quite difficult to tell. A lot of the size depends on how much they've been eating. Uh, so they can grow a foot a year or possibly more if well-fed, or they could grow much more slowly. Uh, so unfortunately, without knowing where it came from or when when it came in, we can't really say. Okay. Uh, the hissing aspect, is that a warning sign that the animal's giving you, or is that, uh, hey, come over and pet me? What's it trying to tell us? That, that certainly sounds defensive. It, it sounds like it was a bit nervous or a bit frightened, and uh, it was basically telling them to back off. Okay, from from the story that I had read, that the the father uh, Walter Etzinian had tried to build uh, like a barrier around the reptiles, so it wouldn't you know come after them. I guess uh, was that the right thing to do? Did, did the family act correctly? You know, honestly, that's probably not a bad idea because they could keep it contained uh, to provide enough time for animal services to come and get it. I would strongly recommend against trying to capture it yourself or to otherwise engage it or to get close enough to potentially have issues. So uh, certainly barriers work pretty well. They, it's a big, large thing coming at the alligator. They're most likely going to back away and uh, not deal with it. So it worked pretty well. So uh, don't uh, approach it, because if it's hissing and backing off and, and giving you the signal that, uh, hey, don't come any closer, obviously keeping your distance is, is what you should be doing. Certainly. I mean, it's like any wild animal. If it's backed into a corner, it will try to defend itself, and... Uh, you don't want to defend yourself against an angry alligator. so. <laughs> no, that's the last thing I want. Uh, Andre No, he's uh, assistant director at uh, Little Ray's Reptile Zoo in Hamilton uh, here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Rick in for Scott today. No surprise that the alligator was in a backyard that had a pool. Do you think the alligator knew that the pool was there? It kind of scented the water? You know, honestly, likely not. Uh, with the water, I mean, it smells like chlorine and things like that. Yeah. So. It might have seen the water and figured it was a place to go, or it might have just chanced upon the backyard and found it a relatively safe, quiet place to be. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a really rare occurrence. I can't recall in, in Hamilton or anywhere else in this province, really, where an alligator has been in someone's backyard. Certainly, it, it's not a common thing. Uh, we did have a, a member of the alligator family, a, a spectacle came and appeared in High Park just a few years ago. Hmm. Uh, you know, unfortunately, like I said before, all too often, people decide that it sounds kind of cool, and even though it's illegal, if there is a demand, unfortunately, there are people who will fill it. And every so often, you know, things get out and things get out of hand. Yeah. Uh, we're just speculating at this point, but if this if this reptile was brought in illegally, was uh, an illegal pet, quote-unquote, would this person just have kept it outside, do you think? Oh, certainly not. I mean... <clears throat> It wouldn't survive outside through the whole winter. Right. Uh, they really don't deal well with the cold. I mean, it can drop reasonably cool, but nowhere near Canadian temperatures. Right. So during the summer, that could be the case, but once the fall and winter hit, then forget it. Yeah. I mean, if that had been, 
if that animal had been stuck outside during the winter, it would have most likely died a pretty horrible death. Excellent. Andre, appreciate the uh, the insight. Uh, best of luck with the Little Ways uh, Reptile Zoo. And uh, again, thanks uh, for uh, some of the insight into this story. Oh, no worries. Anytime. Thank you. Andre uh, No, Assistant Director of Little Ray's Reptile Zoo in Hamilton. Uh, I understand producer Luke has uh, picked up the phone, and it's Walter Ertzinian who's on the phone. This is the individual who found the alligator in his backyard. Walter, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Not too bad. So r- recap what happened here on Tuesday. It sounds crazy. Yeah, you have the story down straight from what you were saying earlier. Um, we were getting ready for our anniversary. The girls and my wife were swimming. My 11-year-old decided, and I asked them to get out of the pool and dry off so we can get prepared for dinner, and she uh, was drying off, and uh, she looked over and was like, oh, my God, there's a, oh, my God, there's an alligator, and she thought maybe it was something I purchased or something, you know, like you mentioned, and uh, it was not the fact, of course, and little, little to be known that, the, you know, it was a live alligator, and it, you know, shocked the girls, and we were surprised like how it got in our backyard and what it was doing here. And um, I don't know. There's only a couple of theories. It escaped from someone's house or someone let it go out in the backyard in, in the uh, Bruce Trail there by the water reservoir that's off of Green Hill Avenue. Who knows? So paint the picture for us. You're, you're, you, you hear the screams of your daughter and you go outside and you discover this alligator. Whereabouts is it in relation to your backyard? Where are you? Where are they? Where's the okay. pool? Yeah, um, the pool is pretty much directly behind the house, and we have a, one of those gazebo tents, and it was um, just on the side of our house. So, you know, most people have a walkway between two houses, and we have a, a walkway that's gated off. Uh, so the house is on one side, the fence is on the other side, and the gate on the third side. So it was only open in one area for it to enter or come out of. So that's where I made a barricade with a picnic table and some wood in case it decided to come toward toward us. And um, I have another video that I made that it actually turned toward the gate and was coming toward us. And uh, it was up on all fours walking around. And I just kind of made a couple noises, and then it kind of stayed in its tracks. Because I guess whatever noise made it think twice as to to approach us. How scary of a situation was this? I'm just picturing this gator on all fours, and you guys are freaking out. Well, I didn't have the, at the start, I didn't have the barricade, and the girls are kind of looking. They're starting to get the, after I called 911 to get some direction as to what to do about it, and um, we're waiting for someone to arrive at our home. Um, we were just kind of pulled out the cameras and the, the video and the phones or whatever, and started to think of, you know, it was a little bit of a novelty at the moment, but... Uh, Nonetheless, you know, we're going to keep our distance here, and this thing moves, we're, getting, we're running. So um, it started to move, and that's why I brought a barricade up. Just I wasn't, We weren't going to get any closer. The, my daughter was about four or five feet away from it when she first saw it. Wow. She pulled my other daughter in to look at it. They were about five feet away from it still, and, and they got my attention. I said, well, let's just stay back. I don't know how this thing's going to react, if it's in distress or or if it's sleeping or just resting, we didn't know what to expect of the animal. And, and obviously you had no idea how long it was there for, right? That's correct, yes. Um, they were in the backyard for a couple hours, so they did not see it approach the, the, the house or sit on the side of the house whatsoever. So it may have been there from the night before, or I have no idea. Wow. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Walter Ertzinian. Uh, he's uh, the Hamilton homeowner who had an alligator in his backyard on Tuesday. 
uh, here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott today. So you you find the alligator. You've you've erected this barricade. Uh, you you appear to be somewhat uh, confident and comfortable that it's not going to be attacking you. You've already called 911. They've instructed you to call animal control yep. or animal services. How long between when you first saw the alligator to when animal services showed up? How much of a gap was there? From from start to finish, it was about one hour. Um, Nine, the 911 uh, people uh, got in touch with animal services to get the fellow to our home. And then when it started to move around, I contacted 911 again. They didn't seem to be too upset it was me calling because they're usually dealing with more serious issues than an alligator. <laughs> and and uh, they, they knew, oh, it's, it's Walter with the alligator. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's moving around. He asked me to keep an eye on it if it were to move. And, and I wanted a status update to find out when someone would be coming. And by the time I finished that second phone call, someone arrived at the home to to, to uh, corral him and take him away. And how long did that process take? Um, it, the gentleman from um, the animal control was probably at our house for only five minutes from start to finish. Wow, so it's pretty quick. So he came in. He, I had to bring him through the house because there was no way he can get to the animal from the gate. He was sitting right there at the time. And um, I, I just... Other uh, but courtesy, I said, "Do you mind if I make a video for you?" That pretty much I, I posted up that everyone has seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was just a little courtesy thing. You all work, and you come across something unusual. I thought, "Oh, I'll make a video and I'll send it to you." But this thing exploded to beyond all imagination. It, not surprisingly, I mean, you don't see someone's backyard every day. Exactly. Um, what was the reaction to the people who came? Actually, believe there was a, a an alligator there. Well, um, he got out of his vehicle, approached the gate. Uh, uh, from the street side of the house, and he goes, wow, it's big. And he went back to his vehicle and ended up getting the uh, the pole with the the wire around it, I guess, to, to, I don't know what it's called. They call it a snare. I don't know what the terminology is, but he ended up getting that stick to keep his distance, I guess, from the the, the face of the, the alligator. Uh, any guesstimate on, on where it came from? I know you mentioned it could have been from a neighbor or it could have been from well, the Bruce Trail. Uh, I went back to work this morning. And uh, I had to take yesterday afternoon off due to the media attention. And uh, this morning's talk at my desk was, uh, I think I know someone on your street that might have had one. So <laughs> it, um, I don't think they're going to fess up if they lost it, unfortunately, cause due to the bylaw regulations. So um, that's what I'm hearing. But I, initially I thought someone had let it go. Yeah. How, how's the family doing? Still kind of in a somewhat of a state of shock? Well, We've been talking about it now for a few days, so it's a um, bit of a novelty at the moment, but the girls are milking it because I've asked them to put the cover on the pool yesterday, and they're saying, well, did you check outside, make sure there's no other crocodile and, <laughs> and I, you know, or alligator? I said, no, it, it, you know, the next thing you, uh, I'll see is a, a kangaroo instead. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if anything, you have a great story for your 25th wedding anniversary. Absolutely, yes, sir. Did did you get to celebrate afterwards, or was it kind yeah. of a? Yeah, we we ended up going out to dinner uh, around eight o'clock in the evening and uh, had a nice dinner with my wife and uh, the kids. Wasn't like alligator soup or anything like that. <laughs> no, it was on the fish side of things, buddy, but not the alligator soup. <laughs> That's tremendous, Walter. Great story. I'm glad everyone's okay, and I'm glad it turned out uh, the way it did. It could have it could have been a lot worse. Have you guys talked about that? Yes. Yeah, we we thought, talked about it. You know that next door neighbor has a couple dogs it may have gone after a dog if it was hungry or, yeah. or and, and maybe even worse like a toddler perhaps you know uh, someone playing in their backyard a little child you know 
So I'm, I'm glad it's been taken out of the public harm and it'll be relocated to somewhere better. Good news. Uh, Walter, thanks for the time. Appreciate the call in and uh, hopefully you don't see anything like this ever again. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks, Walter. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, A chronically ill Ontario woman who went to court in a bid to clarify Canada's laws around ending lives with medical assistance has herself died. Dying with Dignity Canada says the woman known in court documents only as AB made use of the legislation last week and died with a doctor's assistance while surrounded by her family. The advocacy group says the 77-year-old had suffered from osteoarthritis for more than 30 years. Dying with Dignity says the woman had previously tried to end her life with medical assistance twice this year, but doctors grew fearful of criminal prosecution and backed out of the arrangement. Here to give us uh, the who, why, where, and how, and all the other stuff that uh, is uh, in between that is uh, Shanaz Gokul, the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. And Shanaz joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Shanaz, how are you? I'm great, Rick. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Um, obviously a bittersweet moment, but at the end of the day, uh, A.B. got her wish, and that's the great part of this story. Yeah, and I mean, it is for me, it's personally bittersweet because I got to know her quite well um, over the past four months and, and really grew to have a lot of affection for her. She was a formidable woman in so many ways uh, and was very consistent about um you know, wanting to have an assisted death and believing that she absolutely should be able to be, you know, to be able to have one, be eligible for one. Did she have, obviously, some frustrations about how the system was, was not working? Yeah, she had a lot of frustrations. Uh, she was trying to um, to have an assisted death since January of this year. Uh, and as you mentioned uh, in the lead-up to this, she had a, a doctor who there were, uh, you know, a couple different uh, dates that were set for the assisted death, and then they were canceled at the last minute. So you can imagine how frustrating um, that would be uh, for her, but also the emotional toll on her family of thinking, okay, this is going to happen next week, and then it doesn't, because there's just so much wrapped up in just trying to be able to support a loved one through that process. So I think she was incredibly frustrated. Her family was very frustrated, but going through an emotional roller coaster. And uh, finally, you know, she decided that she, she was going to go to court and, uh, and have this clarified for herself. But it's really important to know that this is a, a woman with a lot of compassion. Uh, she really was pleased to, to, to know that this might help other people um, in similar situations so that they wouldn't have to go through the hurdles that she went through, um, you know, in order for them to be able to have an assisted death. And that's our hope for this decision, that it could have implications for other people in the future. You mentioned that roller coaster. I can't imagine going through this, uh, well, ultimately three times, really. The, the two failed attempts, or at least the doctors who were who were scared of that criminal prosecution, you know, backing out of the arrangement. And, you know, as in this occurrence, you know, the family is preparing emotionally, psychologically, spiritually of, uh, of having a family member pass away through medical assistance and having that to be canceled not once but twice, that must have been just ravaging to the psyche. Oh, absolutely. Well, even once the decision came down and I was uh, in the Toronto courtroom, uh, I told her I'd be there for her. Uh, you know, her lawyers obviously were representing her, um, uh, but I was representing her from a very personal place. 
And when I spoke to her after the decision that afternoon, she she couldn't believe it because she'd been through so much. And she's like, are you sure? Are you sure now? Does this really mean? I said, yes, you'll be able to have an assisted death. Yes. The judge said you meet the eligibility criteria, but he went further because he didn't want other people to have to go through what she's gone through. He wanted to allay the fears of uh, clinicians and physicians who were using an overabundance of caution, as, as he, in his words, um, that they don't need to go to those extents and to be so restrictive um, for people who are suffering so much. And, you know, I just want your listeners to know that when we say that she had osteoarthritis, she had severe osteoarthritis the last couple of years of her life um, had declined significantly her mobility her ability to you know just sit up in a chair she couldn't do she couldn't sit at a regular uh, table you know for for meals Um, and she had pain throughout her day and into the night she was on pain meds every three or four hours Um, and her condition was quite severe but she could have lived four years uh, and I think that the, the judge really um, tried to, to do everything he possibly could, given the jurisdictional issues, the civil court um, matter, to clarify it for others. And we really hope that that will be the legacy of this woman who has just you know, shown so much courage um, and just has so much conviction. What was the stumbling block for the, do- for the doctors? Have we ever found that out? Yeah, it was the eligibility criteria that her... Um, you know, her natural death has become reasonably foreseeable. That was that was the, the sticking point. And as I believe you would know, Rick, that's been the sticking point since this legislation, you know, was first announced mm-hmm. in April of 2016 and then once it was passed. Um, what does that even mean? Now, what it should mean, um, according to this decision, and this decision was not challenged by the Ontario Attorney General or the federal um, age uh, attorney general. So the decision stands. So it should mean for other people with severe chronic illness like AB who are already on a trajectory towards death where they've got a condition that's not going to get any better. There's nothing else that you know they want to try or there's nothing else they can try, but they should be able uh, to qualify for an assisted death. But the decision doesn't answer the question about the constitutionality of Bill C-14, which is currently being challenged both in B.C., and in Quebec, and we believe that these processes still need to go forward and that the eligibility criteria needs to be struck down and replaced with the eligibility criteria that the Supreme Court of Canada outlined in the Carter decision, which led to the federal legislation. And can you clarify that criteria? What does that mean? So the um, Supreme Court of Canada said that, you know, um, uh, people who are clearly consenting, who are competent, um, who have a grievous and irredeemable medical condition that causes them intolerable and enduring suffering, uh, and for which there is no treatment acceptable to them, that in those circumstances they should be able to have an assisted death. That is very different from you know, the federal government's eligibility criteria, which says your natural death has to be reasonably foreseeable. Um, You know, is that terminal illness? Is that imminently, you know, dying? Which is how many, many clinicians and institutions have interpreted that legislation, um, which is not, I mean, the court did not use terminal or imminent or, you know, immediately dying uh, in their decision. And so that, uh, in the end, does need to be struck down so that it's clear once and for all um, and that that would include other people. The court said in their decision that that could include people with, you know, physical um, um, uh, conditions, uh, people with disabilities, 
people with psychological suffering. Uh, and so it does need to be struck down so that it can be, you know, other people can be included, people who have long-standing um, disabilities where they're not necessarily on a trajectory towards death. They've had it for many decades. Uh, that needs to be clarified so that Canadians who should have qualified under the Supreme Court's decision will be able to qualify if they choose in the future. Are doctors showing any hesitation towards assisted death? I would say yes. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's not much of a surprise there. It's still a very new treatment, and in many ways it's still a very stigmatized treatment. It's mm-hmm. controversial. And so, but when you have language that's very vague and really is the difference between a medical treatment and a severe criminal charge, that's not very helpful or comforting to, to physicians, right, um, to want to be involved, even those who may be on the fence of, yeah, I think I could do this. Um, you know, the criteria uh, is problematic. Even with this decision, it's still going to be problematic. But there's also a lot of other hurdles that doctors are facing um, in terms of being uh, assessors and providers for medical assistance in dying. They're not, in many cases, being compensated fairly. Um, there's really literally a mountain of paperwork in, involved. Um, there's a lot of coordination that has to happen between witnesses and, you know, the other um, assessment being done. Um, in some cases, they need to talk to specialists, depending on the complexity of the case. There may need to be travel, um, because we have the second largest country in the world. Uh, and so there are a number of reasons um, why I think physicians are hesitant to become involved. Um, but I think the least we can do is clarify what their role is, what the eligibility requirement is, so there's no vagueness there. And I think that will be encouraging uh, for physicians. And the other access pieces, uh, we have to really look to the provinces to ensure that there are reporting mechanisms that are streamlined so physicians aren't doing you know, duplications uh, in terms of who they're reporting to and that the paperwork can be streamlined so that it still you know, it illustrates that all of these safeguards have been met, but not at the expense of a doctor taking three, four, or five hours to try to complete that paperwork. Um, it's a work in progress, and I do believe that over time, uh, more and more clinicians, and now nurse practitioners, of course, can help assess and provide, will become involved uh, in this treatment, and that will help to sort of ease the burden that's really been on the shoulders of a few clinicians across the country. We're hearing from uh, Shanaz Gokul, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, talking about uh, AB, the patient who helped fight for the clarification in Canada's assisted dying law, who passed away at the age of 77 with medical assistance. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the vagueness. Uh, how long How long is it going to take for us to, to get a system where uh, it's black and white, we know the, the what, what we can do and what we can't do, and, and we can just move on and not have any of these loopholes or question marks? Well, the unfortunate thing is we could have had that system last June, um, but of course there was a failure of courage on the part of the uh, federal uh, uh, government to, to, to provide that clarity. Uh, so now we have this decision. Now this decision, the AB decision, um, which hasn't been contested, it should stand, but of course not everyone knows about the AB decision, so I'm really glad you're covering it today on your program. Uh, and we're going to have to educate and engage with um, people in the medical community in the coming months to make sure that people understand this and what it means. In terms of striking down the eligibility criteria um, altogether, uh, because it is unconstitutional, um, there are two legal processes in play, one in Quebec, one in BC. I would anticipate that, um, you know, they may go to court, uh, you know, trial in the next year. 
Um, but they'll probably be appealed no matter what happens. So if we're looking at a decision that goes all the way back up to the Supreme Court, we could be talking another two, three, five years, which is really unacceptable um, because there is already a clear blueprint from the Supreme Court of Canada, and it's really mind-boggling that the federal government wants to spend more money, taxpayer money, um, you know, to fight uh, what should have been the eligibility criteria in the first place. There's still a sentiment out there that uh, many people think that, uh, you know, unless you're in your end of days, you should not have an, a, a medically assisted death uh, be an option. What, what do you say to those people? You know, I, I think that um, it's this is really all about um, respecting the, the rule of the law, the rule of the land and, 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 and the law of the land from the Supreme Court of Canada. And that, you know, this is about intolerable and enduring suffering. And some people will have that as they are dying and they have, you know, months or, or weeks to live and they should be able to have that choice. But suffering isn't restricted to a particular time in a person's life. And intolerable and enduring suffering, which takes a person um, towards a trajectory towards death, um, you know, there is no time frame for that. And people who have that kind of suffering, like A.B., that woman used to wake up in the middle of the night screaming uh, with pain uh, because uh, she was just constantly um, uncomfortable and constantly enduring a really awful, awful type of pain um, that, you know, for her, because she, she was, you know, suffering so much, that she decided that her end of life should be when she says it should be according to the court. Uh, and I think that that's the distinction is that people have a choice and they should have a choice when they meet the criteria, when they have that kind of suffering to determine when their end of life is going to be not, you know, for others to determine for them because they're not comfortable you know, uh, our moral discomfort is not a good enough reason to discriminate against people who have this kind of suffering and to further the harm being done to them because we're not comfortable. That is not what the Supreme Court said. The Supreme Court said that people in these circumstances should be able to make a choice. It's a personal choice that, you know what, I can't bear this anymore uh, and I should be able to access an assisted death. And what we do know for, for many people is that, and even with AB, uh, the decision came down in, in June, and she waited until August to, you know, put things together. And for her, she could wait that time to, you know, ensure that her family could be with her and the things that she wanted to do and say could be done because she knew she was going to be able to have an assisted death. So that gave her more time. And I think that that's something that we've seen consistently is that once some people know, you know what, I qualify, okay, I can, I can stick it out a little bit longer. That's a benefit because we want people to live as long as possible, the best quality of life as possible until they can't. And only they can determine that with the help of their doctors. Shanaz, appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Shanaz Gokul, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, talking about uh, AB, the patient uh, at 77 years of age who helped fight for the clarification in Canada's assistant dying law, uh, passing away with uh, medical assistance. And uh, she had suffered from severe osteoarthritis for more than 30 years, or about half her. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
Ticats and Blue Bombers uh, are going to uh, go tete a tete uh, tomorrow night at Tim Hortons Field. Hamilton's 0 6, Winnipeg 4 2. We'll bring in in the second or two the longtime legendary play by play announcer for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on Chorus Radio Affiliate, or Sister Station, as we like to call in the biz. Uh, CJOB in Winnipeg, Bob Irving, he's standing by. Uh, but I want to I want to pass along this snippet, this tidbit, this jewel, this nugget of a statistic that is uh, really painting the Ticats uh, season in, uh, in, in this picture, and, it, and it's not a very pretty one. The Ticats are the 18th team in CFL history to start a season 0-6. They lost their season-opening sixth consecutive game last weekend in Edmonton. Um, only one team in the history of the Canadian Football League that has started 0-6, so of the 17 teams before this season's Ticats team, only one has made the playoffs, and that happened in 1969. The BC Lions did it. They started their season 0-6. They finished their season 5-11. Now, here's the one stipulation, is that in 1969, they did not have the crossover rule. That crossover playoff spot was instituted in 1996, and lo and behold, obviously we have it here. So the Ticats are not only battling to get into a playoff spot within the East Division, that'll likely mean it's got to be in the top two playoff or top two positions in the East Division to get in. Because we all know, and it's happened almost every year, that a Western team crosses over into the East. And there hasn't been one, get a load of this, there has not been one Eastern team that has crossed over into the West. How about that? Well, it all starts again tomorrow night, or restarts again tomorrow night for the Ticats as they battle the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Joining us now is, and he's been doing this as long as I've been alive, we're talking early 70s. Bob Irving is the play-by-play announcer for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers uh, with CJOB out in Winnipeg and joins us now. Bob, how are you? I'm fine, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks uh, for joining us today. Welcome back to Hamilton. I know you make the trip uh, each and every year, and it's uh, it's great to have you in town once again. Maybe we'll start with a scouting report on the 2017 Blue Bombers who started their season 4-2. and two. Well, we're calling them at times, Rick, the cardiac kids. Uh, you know, they have won four games, and they've come back in all four of them to win. They've been down 14, 12, 8, and 5 points in those four games, and and they've won uh, some wild ones, 43 40, 33 25, 41 40, So, you know, they're not overwhelming anybody, uh, but they are certainly adept at rallying. And uh, Matt Nichols has done a great job of putting together late drives and, and you know, playing well in the, in the crunch. And uh, here they sit at four and two. So I'd say they're kind of a, what, a soft four and two, but hey, four and two's not bad, six games in. Four of Winnipeg's first six games, you mentioned some of the scores, they've been decided by three points or less. What does that tell you about this team? Because in past years, they wouldn't be winning those games. No, that's true. Well, they've developed, I think, a a calm confidence in themselves, and a lot of it has to do with with Matt Nichols, I believe. Uh, He's been really, really good, Rick, since he took over from Drew Willie early last year. The team is 14-5. and since Matt became their number one quarterback six games into the 2016 season. And I think he drives a lot of it. And Mike O'Shea has worked very, very hard in sort of developing this team mindset, this team chemistry where the players have confidence and believe in one another. And it's one of those 
things that's kind of hard to put your hand on in pro sport or put a finger on, but it seems like the Bombers have developed a certain belief that they are good and good enough to win uh, games when it comes down to the kind of the final analysis. So I think we're seeing some of that. We all know that the CFL is a quarterback-driven league. Uh, we've mentioned Matt Nichols a couple of times now. He, he's showing everyone, I think, in the CFL that he can be the guy. What do you like about his game? Well, he's a tremendous leader, and, and that's the one thing you don't see. The players just rave about his leadership qualities, the way he takes command in the huddle. Uh, they have so much respect for him, and I, I think that's important. He's, a, I think, a more accurate passer than he gets credit for. His uh, percentage... Uh, completion percentage is is very high he's only thrown four interceptions this year rick so his touchdown to interception ratio is very good he doesn't make a lot of mistakes or make a make a lot of those throws that get picked off where you shake your head and go man what was he thinking he'll throw the ball away or take a sack so he plays a smart game you know he's got a lot going for him i think uh, when the bombers acquired him everybody thought well yeah he'll be a good backup or a good number two guy uh, but, boy, hes uh, I think he's blossoming into to one of the better ones in the league. I really do. Does he remind you of anyone in specific, either who's playing in the league now or, or, or uh, uh, over the last uh, number of decades? You know, I've been asked that a number of times, and the, the one bomber quarterback that I compared him to was Tom Burgess, who's the last bomber quarterback to lead his team to a Grey Cup in 1990. Uh, I think they have some similarities. You know, they're they're sort of, not real highly skilled guys, if I can use that term. They can't run very well or anything like that, but they, they're grinders, uh, and they have uh, tremendous respect from their teammates, and they, they just find a way to get it done, and I, w- I would compare them to Tom Burgess. We're chatting with uh, Bob Irving, uh, play-by-play announcer for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on sister station CJOB in Winnipeg here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott all week long. Uh, The ever-dangerous Andrew Harris having another sensational campaign. He's on pace to become the first player in history to record a thousand yards rushing and receiving. How big has he been for this Bombers unit? Well, you know, when you talk to the Bomber brass, they tell you that Andrew Harris has been everything and more that they expected when they signed him as a free agent before the start of last season. He's another one of these guys who has developed into a a tremendous leader, and you might not have said that about him, Rick, early in his career in B.C., but he plays with so much blood and guts. I mean, he's never, almost never stopped by the first tackler. He's just a tremendous effort guy. He's he's powerful. Uh, He maybe doesn't have the moves and the speed that some of the sort of the scat backs in this league have, but... uh, He'll get you some tough yards, and you know he's a tremendous receiver. I can't remember a, a running back in this league who was a better receiver than Andrew Harris. He's a good blocker. Mike Doshe has called him one of the smartest players he's ever been around. He never, literally never makes a mistake. So he's been, you know, and for a Canadian, to say that about a Canadian running back, uh, boy, he brings an awful lot to the party. Yeah, and having a Canadian at that position really opens up, you know, the possibilities for the roster in terms of uh, the ratio, right? Well, sure. Yeah, it it allows you, you know, to be flexible, and and you're right. It's uh, you know, we talk about what a good player he is, whether he's Canadian or American. He's a really good player, but the fact that he's a Canadian opens up that ratio flexibility, and so it's just a, just a bonus, really, in having him in the team. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Bombers' defense. Uh, the Ticats' offense has had more downs than ups, certainly in 2017. Is the secret to not throw the ball anywhere near where Winnipeg defensive back T.J. Heath is going to be? 
Well, he has four interceptions. He told me he hasn't had one for a couple of games, and he's hungry to get another one. He claims he's dropped two or three in the last couple of games, and I think he's right. He has. Uh, he's, a, he's a real ball hawk. He's one of those guys that, you know, when you ask the coaches what makes him so good at picking off passes, it's very hard for them to, to define it other than he's got a nose for the ball. His vision and anticipation is at a very high level. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he's strong. He and uh, Chris Randall play on the one side. Randall, to me, is as good a corner as there is in the league. And then the other side has a couple of young guys, uh, and that's where teams have been going and throwing a lot. So I expect that uh, Calaris will, I don't think he'll throw it over on Randall and Heath's side as much as he will the other side. It's uh, certainly been a tumultuous week uh, here in Hamilton for the 0-6 Ticats. They released Will Hill after we've heard that uh, he was, quote, a cancer in the locker room. The team fired defensive coordinator Jeff Reinbold, uh, who you know very well. Uh, they've named Philip Lawley uh, his replacement. Earlier on, they brought in June Jones to be an assistant coach. Uh, it's a team that seems to be uh, tinkering, obviously, some would say in turmoil. You've covered this league for decades now. You've seen these sorts of in-season moves. What do you make of what the Ticats are doing? Well, first of all, I'm very surprised that they're 0-6, Rick. When the season began, I I just didn't envision that. When you have a quarterback the caliber of Zach Kolaris, you know, you think that team is always going to have a chance. Now, when they fall into 0-6, I think we all knew something was going to happen because you simply can't go on without making some changes. So I don't think any of us were surprised. Uh, You know, the defense has given up, what, more yards and points than any other team. So Jeff Reinbold certainly was in the eye of the hurricane uh, during the last few weeks. And uh, his ouster, I don't think any, again, caught anybody by surprise. I have a soft spot for Jeff because I've gotten to know him really well over the years. And he's such a likable guy, as you well know. But, hey, when teams are struggling the way the Ticats are, changes are going to be made. So... I'm not surprised at, at some of the things that they've done. I guess we'll get a better idea in this game what immediate impact they will have and whether or not they'll work. That's, I guess, an open question. But uh, I don't know, Rick. Calaris is such a good quarterback, and I, I still believe that. And I think he struggled this year. I don't think his O-line has helped him very much. But they have a quarterback in Hamilton who is a top-drawer guy. And as long as you've got that, then I think you've got a chance. So you're telling us there's a chance. <laughs> well, sure, and look at the East. I, you know, Ottawa's one six and one. Montreal two and four. For heaven's sakes, the Ticats are four points out of second place at zero and six. So I, you know, I, I think the great benefit they have is the East is having such a tough year. Uh, but again, I go back to uh, to Calaris. Uh, any team with a with a quarterback who's really a top-notch quarterback, I think you never write them off. And we've seen, hey, in this league, we've seen lots of teams come back from the depths of despair and and in a weak division like this one still make the playoffs so i mean it's going to take some doing but i wouldn't i wouldn't count them out yet yeah despite the record uh, there's certainly a lot of interdivision games uh, that the ticats have coming up and and they'll obviously have to win those games to get back in it but but you you mentioned the the east and west can you put a finger on why it's been so lopsided over the last number of years no i really can't you know, there's no competitive advantage that any team has. There's a salary cap in this league. Uh, you know, there's good people running these teams. Look who's in charge here. You know, Kent Austin, his, you know, I think his reputation speaks for itself. You've got Jim Pop now in Toronto with, with Mark Trestman, uh, Marcel Desjardins in, in Ottawa. He knows he's been around the league a long time. Uh, 
So the ability to recruit and draft players is the same for every team. Uh, the resources are pretty much the same for every team. So I don't know. It's just one of those cyclical things, I guess. I, th- that's the only way I can describe it, Rick. I don't see any sort of tangible reason that, that you could cite for the Western teams being better. Certainly uh, Hamilton and the other Eastern teams waiting for that other side of the cycle to come about, and who knows when it's going to come, but uh, yeah. we'll be waiting, that's for sure. Bob, appreciate yeah, the sure time. you'd love to see it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate the time. Uh, have a great call uh, tomorrow night, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Hey, thanks a lot, Rick. Bob Irving, legendary play-by-play announcer with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, says the Bombers are in town. They will face off against the Hamilton Tiger Cats tomorrow night. Kickoff is at 7.30. CHML's fifth quarter will be on the air in and around 10.30. So whenever the game ends, we're, uh, we launch into action and take your calls or tweets or emails uh, and uh, just talk about uh, Tie Cats football. Hamilton 0-6, Winnipeg 4-2. and uh, These two teams, whenever they come together, usually play a spirited, hard-fought, more often than not, close game. And I'm expecting uh, that... Um, scenario to occur tomorrow night at Tim Hortons Field. And uh, maybe, just maybe, the Ticats will end their season-opening winless streak against Winnipeg. If not, they'll have to wait until next week against Ottawa. And if they don't do it against them, they'll not only be 0-8, but they'll have to chew on that 0-8 throughout the bye week leading up to the Labor Day Classic at the Donut Box against the Argos. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.